Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MD. Murdering You Black. It is your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And we are going to go ahead and get into our crime case for the day. But let's hear a little bit about some facts surrounding our case. Yes. Yeah, so we gave you some facts last time Steph and I were together just about the city. We're going to kind of try to pick that up and see if you guys like it. Our case uh, is, is in two different cities. Uh, so I'm going to give you fun facts about both. So the first city that it's in is Greensboro, North Carolina. And fun fact about Greensboro is that it is the International Civil Rights Center and Museum. It's the hub for like civil rights. So many historical things happened in Greensboro and they have a center and museum that's located there that just chronicalizes the history of the sit-ins that took place in Greensboro uh, during the pivotal moments of uh, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. And so I loved that fun fact about them. And then also, Steph, Greensboro is known as the Gate City. And they get this nickname due to its location and the transportation hub to the rest of North Carolina. So I thought that was pretty interesting for any of our Fans out there that lives in Greensboro, shout out if you knew those two fun facts about Greensboro. The other city that our case takes place in is Edgewood, Maryland. Now, Edgewood, Maryland is kind of a small, not like really well-known place. Like, I've never heard of Edgewood. Steph, have you ever heard of Edgewood? No. So there's not a lot of fun facts about Edgewood. As a matter of fact, the only fun fact that I was able to even remotely uncover is that a guy by the name of Albert played for the Miami Dolphins as I believe he was a quarterback, but that's the that's it. And I'm not saying that's not a fun fact, but I don't know who he is, so it doesn't make it that interesting. So I expanded my fun fact search and just went to Maryland. And Maryland's fun fact, I have two for you, is the nickname for Maryland is the Free State. Now, Steph, I thought this had to do with the Civil Rights Movement. Oh, okay. But it does not. It is nicknamed the Free State because back in the 1920s, when there was, you know, a prohibition against alcohol, they advocated very vocally against it. They wanted to, you know, free us and let us drink alcohol. And so that's why they got the nickname The Free State. Interesting. Very fun fact. The second fun fact is that Maryland um, is the oldest, has the oldest continuously published newspaper in the United States that was founded in 1727. It is called the Maryland Gazette. Okay. 
I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. Like, that's a really old newspaper. And nowadays, where newspapers are probably not even, like, really a thing. You know, it is. But, you know, it's just not what it used to be. It's interesting that they still are up and running and still, I don't want to say doing well, but they're up and running. They still remain. So They are still there. So we're going to dive into our case. But, Steph, before I get right into the facts of the case, do you have a title for the case for us? Yeah. Know when to leave the table when love is no longer being served. That's a long title, but I'm going to tell you guys, it is accurate to the facts of this case. So grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening. But either way, let's get into it. So our case involves two people Tanasha Sienna and George Moore. Now, Tanasha uh, was born in San Diego. However, she was a military brat. So she traveled, you know, to various states. And as a result, she learned how to easily and quickly adapt. Uh, People described her personality as just being very extroverted, outgoing, friendly, likable. And when you're a military brat, like you really kind of have to learn how to adapt and learn how to make friends wherever you go because you don't know when you're moving again. And she was very similar to that. But after high school, she finally landed for the first time in a place that she was able to stay for longer than just a couple of years. And that was North Carolina, where she attended Bennett College. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with Bennett College, it is, in fact, a historically black college. And so she went to Bennett College and just two days in to her experience at Bennett College, she met George Moore. Now, George Moore was a local. He grew up, he was born and raised in Greensboro, North Carolina, and he was described as just being like extremely lovable, smart, kind, generous, and a hard worker. And she immediately was taken by him. They met at this like local food spot and they immediately like fell in love with each other. I don't fell in love. Maybe that's a little too strong, but they just fell very hard for one another. And quickly he introduced her to his family and they moved in just five months after meeting each other and started this relationship. They were just completely smitten with one another. Now, George was a big family person. And so it was really important to him that his family liked Tanasha. And in fact, they did. They felt like she was really kind and sweet and lovable. And they saw some of those same qualities that he saw in her, they saw in her as well. They continued their relationship throughout the time that she was in college. And she actually, he actually ended up transferring um, and going to, he didn't go to Bennett College. He actually went to North Carolina State and he had transferred there and majored in Electrical, electrical engineering. engineering. He was very, again, I said this at the beginning about him, but he was very, very smart. He was known to get all A's throughout, you know, his younger uh, childhood and even into college. He was just a very hard worker. And he not only thrived in in school, but he also held down a part-time job throughout the time that he was in college. 
And so he didn't really have a lot of time for much else. But him and Tanasha, they figured out how to make it work. And so much and so that in 1999, she got pregnant. And as a result, after she uh, had her son, had their son, she ended up dropping out of school so that she could take care of the, her, their son full time. And that was perfectly fine for George. George stayed in school and he ended up graduating. And as soon as he graduated, he had many different offers to go work at several various companies. But one offer in particular really piqued his interest and it was working for NASA. And so he just felt like that was going to be the best fit for him. And even though it wasn't in Greensboro, North Carolina, he knew in his heart that this is that was going to be the place that was going to allow for him to thrive in, in his career goals. And so he packed up and he moved to Edgewood, Maryland. OK, I kind of want to, you know, stop you for a second and just kind of like double back to the fact that. You know, this guy was a good man, like a good catch by anyone's standard, right? Like, he was an electrical engineer. He was going places. And I would say, you know, you know, when you go to college, they always say you meet your husband in college, right? But at least that's what they say. I mean, I met mine in college. So, you know, um, you know, I just I just think he's a he's a good he's a really good catch. And not only that, but he was a hard worker. I mean, like, that was like when so many people described his personality, that was one of the things that they kept honing in on is that he really worked hard. I think at one point he was holding down two jobs and going to school. He was just gonna do whatever it took. He was really, really smart and he was really, really a, had really good work ethic. Yeah, and I think also something that I'm just kind of just wanting to put that, you know, drop that seed in y'all's mind as you're listening. But also with, you know, Tanasha coming from this background where she was like, like very transient and, you know, she didn't lay down roots to connect with this guy. It seemed like she built a solid foundation, not just with him, right, but her community going to Bennett College and his family. So it was like this, I don't know, seemed like they had, she was pretty vested into their relationship, probably more so than somebody who wasn't as transient in their background. Yeah, I, I like to, I think you're right. I like to think that that's exactly what it was for her. That what Well, one of the things, at least, that attracted her to George, and specifically, Steph, her family talked about that on, I mean, not her family, his family talked about that on the documentary, that, she was looking for this loving, big family. She didn't have that. And so she saw that in George, and it was one of the things that she loved because they welcomed her in to their family and treated her like she was family. And then when she had, you know, you know, her and George's son, it was like, you really are now for real family and you're an extension of George and and we just we love you and welcome you and 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 he was a good loving hardworking family man and that was one of the things that she loved about him yeah by our standards I mean he was he was the catch and not to say that she wasn't but I just kind of want to you know have that in your in your mind as you continue to listen so he packed up relocated to Edgewood Maryland to start this career that he had been working so hard for 
all these years in college. But when he relocated, he did not take Tanasha and their son immediately because they didn't really tell us why. But I would imagine that, you know, he wanted to go put his roots down, like figure out where are we staying? Like, what what's my rhythm? What's my new life before where, you know, what apartment, house, whatever am I going to get when I get up here? But they soon followed uh, shortly after, about three months, as a matter of fact. However, when she gets up there, that three-month difference, that time that they had separated really kind of did a number on their relationship. They just started to argue and bicker about things that they once didn't. And I think they just learned how to live without each other. And they weren't so amenable to trying to make it work anymore. And so she ended up getting a job as a salesperson for AT&T and They broke up, but they stayed connected. Why? Because they had their son. Their son bound them together, and so they would co-parent, and they would occasionally hook up, meet up, but they lived separate lives. He had moved on. She had moved on. She was doing really well for herself. She had got this job with AT&T as a salesperson, and she was thriving. She was making really good money, and she really had a sales personality, very extroverted. And, again, she was friendly and likable. And so she was able to take whatever it is they were selling and really do extremely well for herself. So she wasn't in, in Edgewood, Maryland, depending on – George and and what he could provide for her financially she was really thriving for the you know for the first time in her own right and so they live separate lives but like I said they still would connect every now and again I mean by so by connect co-parent I mean by connect I mean they having sex what was tea yeah so they would connect like booty call yeah, because it be that way. Because, yes. you know, and, and they were comfortable with each other in that way, right? So, you know, in between maybe their relationships or whatever the case may be, that's what they would do. And she ended up getting pregnant yet again. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So this time when she got pregnant, George was like, listen, like, you know, just move in with me. This is going to be the better thing. You move in with me and we can take care of the baby together and we'll give this relationship another go. And so she did, but it was complicated. And I, you know, I can only imagine Steph and you tell me what you think that after living on your own, kind of doing your own thing, having your own routine and your own space, moving in with, your baby's father, who you're, you, yes, you've lived with him before, but you've really kind of gotten your bearings and your legs underneath you, and you're older. You know, she was in her 30s at this point. She met him when she was, like, 19 years old. Can you imagine how difficult that may be, Steph? I mean, what, what do you think? Like, as far as her having to make that adjustment of moving back in with him. Right. I mean, and him moving in with her, like both, both parties having to make that adjustment because, you know, not to prevent you from answering, but just to give more background to to our listeners, 
they met when they were super young. He was in his 20s. She was, you know, 19 years old. Now they're in their 30s. Like, they, they, they are much older. Who you who I was when I was 19, 20 years old, I am, you know, in my 40s. I am not the same person. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that's an adjustment for anybody. You know what I mean? And I think that... Um... I think that probably was difficult, at least at the beginning. But I think the thing that centralized them, despite that difficulty, is the fact that they had these kids, you know. And I think when you can have, like, you have this um, something to unify you, I think, like, those challenges can be a lot easier to to deal with a little bit, you know, I, but I, for sure, like, I, I can't imagine, you know, kind of like spinning the block, but you're not really with this person, but we staying together. Like how'd that work? Right. It, it, and it didn't really work as we will see, but they tried to make it work. And like Steph said, they really tried to make it work for, their children. They had these two kids together and they were trying to do quote unquote, what's best for the kids and staying together and showing this co-parenting front. But on June 2nd, 2014, things took a change for, for the worse. Steph, tell us what happened. Yeah. So on June 2nd, 911 dispatchers in Edgewood get a phone call that basically says and it's coming from Tanasha and she is responding and telling the 911 dispatcher that she has been assaulted by her you know baby's father uh George Moore and she tells him or tells the dispatcher that he has assaulted her but then like right you know minutes pass and then she says and yeah I shot him because he assaulted me I was defending myself and so the 911 dispatcher is kind of just like kind of puzzled, at least initially, because she's trying to figure out, okay, you got assaulted. And at what point did you shoot him? It's kind of everywhere for the 911 dispatcher. But the 911 dispatcher tells her to, you know, remain where she is. They're sending, you know, EMT and the police out to their residence. So when EMT arrives, they immediately go onto the scene. And they go upstairs and they find George Moore in his bed on a mattress, no sheets, and he's lying there. And it appears that he went to sleep. So let me paint the picture. His body, he's laying longitudinally on his mattress. He has a pillow in the back of his head. And it just to the naked eye, it appears that he just went to sleep. But as the EMT take a closer look, as they're trying to save, you know, perform life-saving measures, they see that he has a gunshot wound to the back of his head and or a fatal wound to his head. And so they're like, okay, well, he's dead. Like, there's nothing they can do to save his life. So they, you know, they exit the scene. But then, of course, investigators come and they observe Tanasha and Tanasha is beat the hell up. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Um, she has a black eye. She has a contusion to her head. And so it is protocol that they take her to the hospital. So they take her to the hospital. And then the next 
course of action for investigators is that they then have to make sure that their kids are okay because they don't know where their kids are. The kids are not at the house. And that's when a neighbor comes outside and, and lets them know, hey, the kids are with me. And they had, I think their son, their oldest son was about 14 years old. And then their youngest son that they, you know, previously had was about two or three. He was still very young. And so they secured the kids, made sure they were okay, and were going to take statements from them. So, of course, the police are going into the scene with the knowledge that, Tanasha was presumably beat up by George Moore and she shot him as a result, right? Trying to save her life. And they notice when they go into the room that the door to his room is actually off the hinges. But it doesn't appear that it was something that just happened. It seemed like, you know how you can see a door that's pushed in, but it's like leaning to the back of the wall, like a door that has just got pushed out, usually is hanging off the hinges. This door was actually sitting on the wall. So they noticed and said, okay, this doesn't seem like this just happened. But okay, we're still going to take her word for it. But they took a closer look at, the position that George was in and ladies and gentlemen I just have to say you got to if you gonna if you gonna tell the truth or if you gonna tell a lie you have to know that the evidence is always gonna tell the truth on you (laughs) you just gonna have to know that and so George doesn't seem to be in a position where he was lunging at at Tanasha. So, you know, they really are doing their due diligence. They see a shell casing from the from the gun, but then they noticed around the room everything seemed to be in its proper place. Like nothing was, you know, the dresser wasn't knocked down, things weren't turned over in the room as if a altercation had just happened. But they are still taking everything at face value at this point. They're not making any assumptions. They're observing and they're collecting evidence because that's what they're supposed to do. Right, and like they are collecting this evidence without having spoken in any detail, right, with Tanasha. And so that's why they're having, they just have a very generic, brief statement. But Steph, I want to add that when they talked about how the room wasn't really in disarray, like I love that you said it didn't appear like something had been turned over or flipped over. I feel like they needed to have said that because when you look at pictures of the actual room, it is filthy. Yeah, yeah. The room I, is dirty. Yeah. But what's th- to Steph's point, it doesn't look like a struggle happened. It just looks like this is the room somebody lived in. Like this is, it doesn't look like if, if me and Steph were to get, have gotten into a fight, an altercation, like the way that her, the way that she looked, and the way that he ended up on that bed, you would imagine that there would be dressers turned over or flipped or, you know, pillows thrown. You, you would just imagine that there would be some sort of a, a visual representation of said struggle. And it wasn't. So, yeah. So investigators at this point know that they have to follow up with. Tanasha. So Tanasha goes to the hospital. They're able to, um, you know, give her some aid. Um, But the aid is not unusual. Like it's very much, you know, you can be discharged the same day. We're not keeping you here overnight. And so it is that point that she signs herself out of the hospital, but not before investigators take her downtown to get her statement. Because 
MD, and you can expound upon this a little bit more, but just because you claim that it's self-defense, the police have to go through the necessary protocols to prove said self-defense, right? Right. Specifically, and even more importantly, she admitted to shooting him. He's dead. No matter what, she's arrested at this point. Now, at... If you're saying it's self-defense, if we can corroborate that with your testimony and the evidence, then we can let you go. But she's still under arrest. Right. So they bring her downtown and she is sitting, you know, in the chair, very, you know, self-assured. She doesn't appear to be nervous. Very matter of fact. And she begins to recount her relationship with George. Now, MD told you a little bit about how their relationship went, that it was, for the most part, pretty amicable. Um, They, you know, had some breakups and even, you know, slipped in another baby. But for the most part, you know, it was a smooth transition from being in a relationship to having children together. And overall, their relationship was 17 years. They had almost 20 years in the game of just being with each other in and out, off and on. So she recounts to investigators um, that, you know, they met in college and um, they had their first child. But she said it was at that point after they had their their oldest son that George got violent with her. He would push her around. He would be, you know, not just physically abusive, but also verbal. And at some point in between her being pregnant and having their first child, they are still living together because you remember George is still getting, um, he's still in school working, uh, trying to obtain his electrical engineer degree, and she's taking care of their son. But in between that, she reveals to investigators that she actually um, was enduring abuse. And he was very violent. And at some point, she got pregnant. Now, got to keep up with the story. So she had their oldest son. And we know they had a second son. But we didn't know anything about this child in between. So she says while she was still in North Carolina, she got pregnant with their second child. But George didn't want this child. He didn't want it so much and so, like, he pretty much forced her to get an abortion. So she didn't have that child. And then that's when he left after receiving his job for NASA. And she said once they got there, you know, that's when they split, as MD revealed. And she kind of corroborated that part of their relationship. She split and transitioned. And they, you know, began to mess with each other again. She got pregnant. They lived with one another. And she said at that point, she was pretty much good with their co-parenting relationship. Even though they had these two children together, she was solid on the fact that they weren't going to be together anymore They were both dating other people, and she was A-okay with them dating other people. She said that is until June 2nd, when this fiasco and sad murder occurs. She says that she had called him previously at some point during the day, early in the afternoon, to tell him to come home because their oldest son needed some help with his math. And I mean, you have an engineer in your household, well, you're naturally going to get them to help with the math homework, right? And so she told him, she was like, hey, I need you to come home and help, you know, our son with some homework. And he said, well, I'll be home shortly. But he didn't come home until like four hours later at night. 
So he, you know, he strolls in like nothing is wrong and and she's pissed. She's like, where you been? So she follows him back to his room. And before anything happens, she tells her oldest son to take their toddler, his little brother, to the park and to just stay there for a couple of minutes or however long. And she was going to, you know, proceed with this argument, right, <laughs> that she was determined to have. And she says that it's at this point that um, George corners her and they begin to argue back and forth about him not being there. And George threatens her and he pushes her head into the dresser. And that's how she got these contu- this contusion on her head. And that's how she got a black eye because he got violent with her again. And she felt like this is the last time that you're going to put your hands on me. She verbally expresses that to him. And he's like, you're not going to do anything because I'm going to kill you if you do. And that's when she pulls out the gun and shoots George. Now, the, the investigators are like, okay, you know, they're, 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 they're just affirming what she's saying. They're like, okay, well, we need to corroborate what you're saying. But little does she know that they're actually talking to their oldest son who is back at the neighbor's house. Now, this is actually kind of a good thing. And I kind of, I, I don't know if this is the, the standard, right? Like for investigators to do that or to do what they did. But I think it was a good thing because it ensured that they could get an honest story from the eldest son. Because had they waited and, you know, brought her back to the station later, this could have been tainted. Right, I agree. And Steph, it it sometimes doesn't work out that beautifully. But in this particular case, it did because the, the son was not at the house after the murder happened. And, you know, like uh, the neighbor pulled him to the side and pulled the, So he had no access to his mother or, you know, I was about to say or father, but he didn't. But he had no access to his mom before they talked to, to, to them. And so you're right. It's so beautiful that it worked out that way because you do get this really true, honest, straight from what I think happened without any manipulation. Right. So they say, okay, so, you know, they, they kind of put their conversation with Tanisha on ice and investigators then talk to her son and he recounts something very similar, but different. He tells investigators that his father, yeah, his father did come home, mentioned to him that he was going to help him with his homework after he took a nap, something he usually always did when he got home. And he said, his mother then told him to take his brother to the park. He said, but mom did something that she doesn't ordinarily do. She has told me to take my brother to the park whenever she's going to talk to my, my dad or, you know, they're having an argument or something. He said, but this time she specified a time. She told me to not come back for at least 30 to 45 minutes. And he was like, that was just that was different. That was just a little unusual. He said, so I get my, I go downstairs, get my little brother packed up, ready to go put his shoes on. He was like, and my mom had just got some fast food. And so I wanted to grab something before we left to go to the park. He said, and so I go to the kitchen and I grab some chicken out of the box and I hear what sounds like two loud pops. And he said, and I didn't know what to think about that. I just like kind of grabbed my things and immediately rushed out of the house. He said, and so 
I waited the amount of time my mom told me, and I came back to see, you know, the ambulance in my front yard and crime scene tape everywhere. And that is when a neighbor came and retrieved him and his brother and collected them and took them into their house. So investigators are like, okay, all right. So another transition ensues because they say, well, we have to corroborate like this history of violence. And they ask even the eldest son, have you ever seen your dad hit your mom or your mom hit your dad? Is there, is this, have you seen anything unusual? And he said, my mom, my dad would never hit my mom. I mean, they've argued, I've witnessed arguing, but he's never put his hands on her, and I've never seen any of that. But investigators have to take a closer look at this. Like, they have to go and talk to family members, friends, and coworkers. And this is when they start to discover a new Tanasha that didn't present herself in the light that was exposed by family and friends. So MD kind of talked about how George was very family oriented. He was the baby of the bunch. He was actually, he was had a whole bunch of sisters. <laughs> so he was the baby boy of the family and his family, his sisters absolutely adored him. They loved him fiercely. And when they were confronted by investigators with this news that George was violent, they were like, that never happened. You know, like George was never, he adored her. Like he would never put hands on her. You know, he had fully moved on from their relationship and he was ready to, you know, go out on his own. And he wouldn't do that, not just because he's a good man, but because that's the mother of his children. And he just really respected her. But they had another story for Tanasha. They say, you know, Tanasha was the violent one. Tanasha was the evil one in this whole entire situation. And they just, to hear the news that their brother was killed, they naturally, immediately, and instinctively felt like, oh, he had to be in an accident. You know, like something, this had to be a car accident that fatally killed my brother. They were literally shocked that he was killed, let alone killed by the mother of his child. So even though they knew Tanasha was a little bit off of her rocker, they just didn't think that she would ever do something like this. And then they couldn't believe the allegations that she was saying about him. So they moved on from his family, right? Because I guess you could say that's bias, right? I mean, yeah, you know, you know, that's a little bias. So they started to talk to his co-workers. And this is when his co-workers revealed several things to investigators. One of his co-workers said that it was one occasion where they went out to a bar um, after work for happy hour. And Tanasha comes and shows up out of nowhere and demands for George to come home. And George is like, Tanasha, go home. I'ma see you later. Like, I'm staying. She leaves the bar and comes back maybe five to 10 minutes later and she has bruises and marks all over her face. And I don't know about you, MD, but immediately when I heard this part of the story, I literally went to my favorite, one of my favorite movies, A Thin Line Between Love and Hate with Martin Lawrence and Lynn Whitfield. When she beat herself up, <laughs> y'all know that scene I'm talking about, she beat herself up in the bathroom and blamed Martin, 
Well, I guess I wasn't the only one who liked that movie. Because Tanasha <laughs> went to the bar. When he didn't leave and did what she wanted, she came back to the bar, beat up, and said, if you don't come with me right now, I'm calling the police, and I'm letting them know that you beat me up. Well. That is certifiable. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, he kind of took it in stride and was just like, all right, come on, let's go. You know what I mean? But months before he was killed actually he decided to go on a cruise and it was on this cruise that he met who he described not only to his family and friends as the love of his life but he described it as the love of his life to Tanasha when he got back they met each other on the cruise ship fell in love he was pursuing this young lady and he felt like this was the person that he was gonna wife up and you know he was preparing himself to get out of this relationship with Tanasha. And he didn't make a secret about it. And I w- I'm saying get out of this relationship, but really it's get out of this co-parenting situation where we're living with one another. He had told her, I met this woman. I want to marry her. I want to be with her. And we're going to have to, you know, you can stay here at the house. Yeah, he was like, I'm going to transition. House. You and the boys can have the house, but I'm going to move out because I've, I've met, my soulmate. I think that's the words he used. My to soulmate, the love I of my life. My soulmate. And so, I mean, Tanasha was very well aware of this, and accompanied with what George's family said about her being violent, his coworkers said what happened at the bar. In addition to, they would sometimes come out of work and would see his car, you know, keyed up or flat tires, the whole thing. They were like, okay, let's check out her phone records. And it was one particular weekend where he took this young lady who he described as the love of his life. He took her out to Atlantic City for, you know, a weekend of gambling and fun. Tanasha called him like 20 to 25 times every day throughout the weekend. And she would not just call him and like she would call. (laughs) This is. I'm laughing, but it's not funny, but it reminds me of high school, like where you would call your your ex and they would pick up and this is back when, before caller ID and you would just call them and you would hang up and then you would call them and hang up. S- silly. So But immature. acceptable in high, I mean, acceptable in high school. But Tanasha was doing that at her big age of 30 plus. And they did have caller ID. That's how the police were able to trace that it was her. (laughs) Yeah. And she was not only just calling and hanging up, but she was sending him text messages and saying, you know, hey, like, you're not going to be with this girl. I want to be with you. We're supposed to have this family together. You need to come back home so we can make our family work. I mean, just harassing him. And then a couple of days later, when he finally does return, well, he's spending a lot of his time outside of the household, right? And so he would spend the night at his girlfriend's house, and there was one time that she incessantly called. She just kept calling, kept calling, and then pulled up on him at the girlfriend's house and makes a ruckus outside of this girl's house. He comes out and to, like, kind of, like, stall her out and to just you know calm down the situation go away it's okay he goes home with tanasha to make her you know to appease her to just say hey chill out like chill out you know what i mean and so 
investigators are trying to, they're starting to see that this picture is looking a lot more like you might have killed this man in rage versus out of self-defense. So (laughs) investigators are like, okay, they confront her with this information, all this information that they pulled up. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that they, you know, they kept her there. They eventually let her go. Right. Cause they had to investigate this and this took several weeks, but eventually they brought this to her and they said to her, listen, like, Everything is pointing to the fact that you killed this man. And they also found out before I kind of get into what happened afterwards. They also found out that um, she was, I'm trying to think of what I was, I was going somewhere with that. It'll come back to me. But, you know, so they are, they, they confront her with all this information. They say, you know, it doesn't look like what you're, you're making it out to be. We're going to have to arrest you. They had, the prosecutor was like, you got enough. You got enough and we're going to charge her. And so that's exactly what they did. Now, when Tanasha went or goes to trial in 2015, because this happens in 2014, she goes to trial and I'm going to tell you their oldest son for me was, I admire him because I think when you're in a situation where your mother or any parent has been accused of murdering the other, I think you can feel very confused, right? Like you kind of feel like, hey, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Or, you know, do I really believe that my mom killed my dad? I mean, MD, what do you think about that quandary that he kind of found himself in? And he was like a a witness. Yeah, I think it's it's so unimaginably difficult and it's difficult for a grown person, let alone a child. You know, he's a teenager, but he's still a child. And I can't imagine the the anxiety and feelings that he must have had to try to navigate how to deal with all of that. And yet, and still, he really handled it so maturely. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I definitely admired him. So he was one of the people that the prosecutors called on to testify. And he said exactly what he had said before. And I can't imagine like him knowing now that his father is deceased and he was actually in the house when that took place. I mean, the guilt and the trauma that this young man just would have to endure. But of course, when it was time for Sienna's And her, you know, her defense to put on their case. Well, they said that it was purely self-defense. Like, this was a self-defense situation. It is what it is. This was self-defense. It had nothing to do with this other woman. It had nothing to do with any of the things that the prosecutors were alleging. This was strictly a case of self-defense. And so, Tanasha was put on the stand. She was put on the stand, you guys, and asked to recount by her defense what took place in the home. And she says everything that she says to the investigators, but she makes one huge mistake as she is sitting on the stand. She tells the jury and everyone in the gallery that he, you know, he he beat her and she actually demonstrated what he did, like how he pushed her head into the dresser and all this and that and like, you know, makes this this big 
skeptical. But the prosecutor came back and said, well, ma'am, if that indeed happened, then your nose would have been broken or your nose would have had some type of bruising alongside with your, uh, like your ear or something like that. And she said, but that's not indeed what happened. Cause see, we have pictures here and your you have a contusion to your head and your eye is blackened. But if it happened the way that you said, then yeah, no, you wouldn't have sustained these injuries. And so the prosecutor was like, obviously, you more than likely beat your own self up like you did that one time at the bar because they had those witnesses come and account for what happened. But not only did the prosecutors have that big bombshell, which is a bombshell to me because, you know, you just can't refute injuries and how they were sustained. Like, you just can't. You're telling me it happened this way and your head was plunged into the dresser this way. But really, it happened on the totally different side of your face in which you had the injuries. I'm just saying. But not only did they have the son testify and were able to totally disrupt her testimony, but the young lady who George Moore was, who he was in a relationship with, got on stand and recounted all of these negative situations that she encountered while she was in a relationship with George Moore. And what I was going to say that I kind of forgot about that I said I would circle back to if I remembered, is that on the day that he was murdered and he said he was going to come back at this specific time, but he ended up staying out a little later, well, he was with his girlfriend. And so she was able to recount how, you know, Tanisha was actually, actually acting crazy, you know, then, trying to get him to come home then. And so, of course, you know, the, the jury came back after deliberation, and this was a situation where each charge that she received carried like a maximum of 30. And then she got a, another charge for having a handgun and the commission of a felony. And that carried a maximum of, of 20. So the prosecutors really didn't know what would, you know, how the jury would sway or what the judge would sentence her to. But the judge actually sentenced her to the maximum. He gave her 50 years in prison for. And her family was, I mean, his family, I should say, they um, were obviously, you know, they don't feel like that was true justice, but they're happy that she is where she belongs. His family is now taking care of their two boys together and she will be eligible for for parole in 2040 when she's about 60 years old. So that is the story of George Moore. Let's go ahead and get into our takeaway for this case. So my takeaway is really your title, Steph, honestly. George Moore recognized at some point, and really maybe even so did Tanasha, when she when when they moved to Maryland, he moved and then she relocated three months later and then they lived together and then they realized this not working. This is not gonna this is not working. I really think that they should have like ended it then. Like do not keep continuing. Do not pass go. Do not collect a hundred dollars. Stop. Don't continue. Oftentimes, like, we recognize, right, like, that this isn't right for me. And, I, I mean, I've done it. 
I've been in relationships. I've been in situations, not even just, you know, in a, in a, in a relationship, but even situations where I know, okay, this is, this is enough. I know this isn't right. I need to leave, or I know this isn't where I should be, or even in a relationship, right? I know that this is not the right person for me. We're too toxic. This isn't working. We argue too much, whatever the case may be. And yet, even when we muster up enough strength to walk away, we still come back and entertain and get the booty calls and do the, you know, like, you know, and, and that is where, in my opinion, they went wrong. That was the wrong turn that they took. The wrong turn was after recognizing that they were not compatible, that it wasn't working, that now that they were older and they were more established in life, that they were not on the same path, that they were not pursuing the same things, that they did not have the same goals, visions, whatever, that made them compatible for each other. And yet and still, they still tried to pursue it. And then even after giving it a second go, a third go, so to speak, after they had their second child, when George recognized that you're not it, they should have really like put it into it. Co-parenting is super important. It you know, it is really healthy for your kids to see a healthy co-parenting situation. But it is absolutely unhealthy for your parents to see for your kids to see you arguing and bickering and fighting and not getting along and Dad doing his own thing and mom's doing her own thing. Like, that's also equally unhealthy. So, you know, oftentimes when, when I hear people say, you know, say that, well, I'm staying for the kids, is that good? Is that really a reason? So, you know, I just think that, that the wrong turn for them was continuing to try to make it work or continuing to live in a situation that they knew was not working when all the red flags were saying, this isn't it, turn the other way. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I um, while I'm not in a co-parenting situation myself, I have several friends who are, and I think that, um, that relationship is, it's, it can be very temperamental. And oftentimes in, in the media, and I just, you know, going off the top of my head, I think about um, Alicia Keys and Swiss Beats and Mashonda. And then I think about um, that. Those are the people who come to my mind right now. But, um, you know, you see these people in the media who have these like what seems to be amazing co-parenting relationships with each other. And I think that's what we should all if you find yourself in that situation where you have split from your spouse and they have moved on, you try to ascend there, right? Like to where we're all getting along and it's picture perfect and it's amazing. But the truth of the matter is, is that that co-parenting relationship looks different. And as long as everybody is amicably getting along, like even if that means, hey, you coming to pick up the kids? All right. And that's about the extent of our conversation is our children. That's okay too, because I think, you know, I think they were trying, both of them with good intentions, were trying to figure out how can we raise this family that we've created in the best way. But the truth of the matter is that they, there was still a lot of emotion there. And that just was like probably impossible for the time. And 
I don't, you know, all we can say is that George Moore was obviously trying to get out of that. He obviously said, no, I don't want it. And I guess to kind of dub my title, I put the onus only because George Moore is no longer here. We can't ask him because Tanasha took him away from us. We can't have that conversation. So the onus for me is on Tanasha. Tanasha had to have some mental instability because anytime I, you know, I always say this here, Alberta the Black, but I'm just like, I don't know how you jump to beating yourself up like in the movies and calling the police <laughs> on somebody. How do you jump to that? Like you have to obviously have some mental instability, but the truth of the matter is, is that at some point you knew that he didn't want you in that capacity because he outright said it, but then I'm sure there were other signs as well. And I heard today, just today on a podcast and, um, you got to know when to pivot your plan. And I think far too often as human beings, we're so committed to what we want. Then when we don't get it, we don't know how to adjust. And life is just full of changes. And if you can't pivot and make those changes, and that's what I was trying to get you guys to kind of just notice, drop my little seed in um, as we were discussing their background. I think because of her probably sense of, you know, transiency in her childhood and being a military brat, you know, that really led to her probably having a, a toxic dependence on him. Like she had a toxic dependency on George and she just couldn't let him go. And as a result, she murdered that man in his sleep because they determined that he was asleep. I don't think I said that at the end of the case, but they did determine that he was asleep and she shot him in his sleep. And she was just so jealous because what she wanted and what she was so committed to having throughout this 17-year relationship with this man was slipping out of her hands. And so I just, you know, just, and, you know, my takeaway is that sometimes co-parenting, you know, doesn't look as picture perfect as you would like for it to be. It doesn't look like, oh, we can stay in this house like the Brady Bunch and we just, you know, you stay in your room, I stay in my room, and we we all take care of the kids, and that it, it can't look like that. Because for them, it, it really couldn't look like that because, you know, Tanasha was still very, very much in love, crazy in love with George. So, yeah, that's the takeaway for that case. You got to know when to leave and to change your plans and find somebody who was going to love you for you. Yeah, know when to hold them, know when to fold them. I hope you got that reference. Yeah, so that is the case I am going to talk about last week's case and bring our attention to that poll because last week's case knocked me off my off my off my toes, socks, all the things. So we will be doing another um, listener's case next week. I've already pulled some that you guys have sent to me. Keep sending them, please, please, please keep sending them. Um, because y'all are sending me some I had never heard about. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my goodness, I ain't heard of that. And I, I think I I tend to think I know everything when it comes to true crime. Truth is, I'm I don't I don't. 
Um, so the poll that I asked you guys is, do you think the grandmother of our case last week of Ramona Moore, um, do you think she knew about Ramona and the 15-year-old victim who was in the basement? And 80% of you said, yeah, <laughs> yes, she knew. 3% said no. And 15% said maybe. So I asked you guys, what did you think about this episode? I asked a very blanketed statement because I really just wanted to hear what you guys had to say. So in no particular order, Mita said, this is such a disheartening case. Imagine just minding your business and you end up dead and for nothing. And we know why the case was dismissed. NYPD and the judges are in the mud together. Absolutely, Mita. Kiki said, it's terrible that the police didn't act sooner. It's also unfortunate that at least two people were aware that someone was being held in that house and said nothing. Um, I can't, I don't know this one, but it's healed. You said, this one really broke my heart because it's like they really do not care. Uh, may that woman rest in peace, and I pray that her mother as well finds peace the grandmother is 100% (laughs) guilty I totally agree and I was gonna read one more simply because somebody mentioned that they knew the guy in the case and I can't find it I can't find it I'm gonna screenshot that and put that on our stories on our Instagram stories because somebody mentioned that the guy who knew that Ramona was in the basement is doing just fine he ain't got no type of guilt for not telling which is you know just a shame it's just a shame but i did uh before i let you guys go i did include a poll on our instagram story today which would be wednesday and i asked you guys would you be interested in me dropping some merch which our merch would just be like some hats and a sweatshirt nothing too heavy because I did promise you guys that before the end of the year and I asked if you want want that right now or wait until 2024 you guys said it was kind of split but most of you said that you want to wait to 2024 and hey I get it because Christmas is like around the corner so we want to you know get y'all's pockets back right okay so we will be dropping some merch in January right in time for 2024 so be looking out for that um yeah so share if you care this episode make sure you get in your case suggestions and we will see you guys next week